The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. My theme for this morning is a utopia, always a dystopian nightmare. I've been asked several times about my PowerPoint. Uh, I don't actually have a PowerPoint because all my points are PowerPoints. Um, I make the point, the Holy Spirit provides the power. So, uh, but I do want to uh, open uh, this morning, uh, because of the nature of what I'm talking about and much of what we've heard, I want to open by reading Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. As we consider dystopian uh, nightmares uh, this morning, It is good to be reminded that Christ, the King, has been set on his holy mountain. Now, last night uh, we heard, uh, during the excellent uh, talk before the concert, a little bit about uh, Sir Thomas More, which is, of course, where the term utopia uh, originates, fellow Englishmen, not all Englishmen are made alike. He was far from biblical, though, in his understanding. It's kind of disorienting to realize that uh, it was a, a Catholic Christian who coined the term, Moore's uh, perspective was one of a communist society, Uh, one in which uh, there would be an abolition of private property, and man living in terms of nature would be the norm. And strangely, uh, he was sainted in 1935. So it's a little disorienting at times to think that a Christian was the one who... uh, coined this term, but of course the idea didn't originate with him, although Lenin took some inspiration from Sir Thomas More, credited him uh, with inspiring some of his ideas. Now, true Christian orthodoxy never, even though Christians may have been involved in speaking about utopia, never comes up with utopian plans or illusions And the reason for that is that the Christian lives in terms of the creator, redeemer God, and his word having already declared God's purpose for history and his purpose for the future. We live in terms of the knowledge that God has ordained all things and that all things will come to pass in terms of his will and purpose. He predestines the future as the sovereign Lord. He sustains it. And the Christian trusts in that. We actually have rest, and we can enjoy Sabbath rest, because we can say, I can take hands off my life today and rest in the Lord because he controls, sustains, and governs all things. And I can rejoice in him and have a holy waste of time. One day in seven, one year in seven, uh, and then 50, whatever. uh, I can rest in a holy waste of time because God, governs all things. Now, the non-believer cannot rest in that. The non-believer can't accept that. They have no such security. And so, 
the utopian idea stems from a religious theology, a philosophy of life. We've been hearing about that already this week. Uh, the foundation of that is that this God we believe in is at least less than fully real. He may be a projection of the ideal man, but he's less than fully real. And instead of a good creation that has fallen, as man's environment being governed by the providence of God, man believes himself to be found in a kind of chaotic universe of flux that is threatening him the whole time with disaster. He's constantly under, he feels under threat that this world is ready to crush him, that he's a victim. That's why man is always full of self-pity. And utopian delusions are about self-pity. Man is a victim and he needs to uh, get out of the threat that he believes he faces in this godless universe. Julian Huxley, who was one of the framers, I believe, of uh, the UNESCO dream, expressed well this temper. He says, who or what rules the universe? So far as we can see, it rules itself. Even if a God does exist behind or above the universe as we experience it, we can have no knowledge of such a power. The actual gods of historical religions are only personifications of impersonal facts of nature and of facts of our inner mental life. So Huxley was saying that the universe can be as capricious as the pagan gods are in mythology or as capricious as my own inner life is. And as such... Uh, what, how we view ultimate reality is going to affect how we view the, so, the social order. Our vision of the universe is going to influence our vision of society and our organization, organization of society. So if we believe that the universe is fundamentally hostile in some way to us, we're going to view the social order as hostile. So we jettison the God of the Bible, and then we are confronted with a world of flux and of change that we feel out of control in. There's no God now giving meaning and purpose and direction to life, not even rationality to life. Man's freedom, in inverted commas, in that kind of a world is seen to be running wild, and man is jeopardizing his own existence by his freedom. Because man is a dangerous creature. Nature is dangerous. And man lives in fear of this. So, it becomes a logical necessity, a religious necessity, to have and create an alternate source of certainty, and more than that, an agency of control. Because man feels out of control. In a sense, this spiritual centering and these occultic forms of meditation and so forth are for man to feel a sense of being in control again of his being, to find some sense of rest and peace. Now, this control grants man what he believes is the only thing that can save him, freedom from unpredictability or freedom from choice into what he thinks is the freedom of necessity. Of nature. J.B.S. Haldane, who was a Marxist utopian, puts it this way. He says, there is nothing behind nature, though there is infinitely more in nature than we know at present. There is no supernatural and nothing metaphysical. Freedom is the recognition of necessity. This is a paradox, but a truth. So, we have the absence or irrelevance of God as the basic liberation and freedom from the providence of God in the name of autonomy. But when man has that some sense of autonomy, he's terrified. He's terrified of anarchy, both in thought and social chaos. And so he plunges himself, he's immediately plunged into the realm of collectivity, a utopian collectivity that then assumes the role of God, predestinating, saving, guiding, providing for this newly liberated man. 
The man-god, or man-enlarged then, is this collective agency for organizing man's liberty and his salvation. And so what is set up is an idol. An idol. And that idol lays claim to the attributes of God. And all that happens is the terminology is either spiritualized, the, the language that we use in more concrete terms about God is either spiritualized in very vague spiritual language, or it's secularized. So the new, the new doctrine of God uh, has ceremonies and sacrifices and creeds like our doctrine of God. Uh, actually, Huxley was very, very explicit on this point. He said this, if we translate salvation into the terms of this world, we find that it means achieving harmony between different parts of our nature, including its subconscious depths and its rarely touched heights, it all, and also achieving some satisfactory relation of adjustment between ourselves and the outer world, including not only the world of nature, but the social world of man. I believe it to be possible to achieve salvation in this sense, and, to, and right to aim at doing so, just as I believe it possible and valuable to achieve a sense of union with something bigger than our ordinary selves, even if that something is not a God, but an extension of our narrow core to include in a single grasp ranges of outer experience and inner nature on which we do not ordinarily draw. Now that could have been said by almost any occultist spiritualist. And yet this is the evolutionary eugenicist Julian Huxley in the early part of the 20th century or the middle part of the 20th century. So the union is with something bigger than the self, the whole, the one, the divinized man, this unification with nature. And he argues that because we've repudiated God, developing meaning and purpose necessarily lies in science, by which he doesn't mean observation and description and discovery. He means socialization, organization, and the endless possibilities of evolution as man takes control of that process and gains power over nature. Because utopian man always believes that suffering and pain, he's a victim and these are intolerable. He's got to get out of them. Now the Buddhist says, well, I'm going to escape consciousness by absor being absorbed into the nothingness, the one, uh, the uh, evolutionary utopian says we're going to get out of it by organizing society. The possible implications of this view are foreseen by George Orwell in his dystopian novel 1984, which many of you may well have read. And he envisages at least something of the problem where fallen man's exercise of power here is demonic because it becomes power for its own sake. Let me just read you a quotation, I'm going to go through it quickly, from Orwell's novel where he has O'Brien declare in a very famous passage, he says, Power is in inflicting pain and humiliation. Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Do you begin to see then what kind of world we are creating? It is the exact opposite of the stupid hedonistic utopias that the old reformers imagined. A world of fear and treachery and torment, a world of trampling and being trampled upon, a world which will grow not less but more merciless as it refines itself. Progress in our world will be progress toward more pain. Already we are breaking down the habits of thought which have survived from before the revolution. We have cut the links between child and parent and between man and man and between man and woman. No one dares trust a wife or a child or a friend any longer. But in the future, there will be no wives and no friends. Children will be taken from their mothers at birth as one takes eggs from a hen. The sex instinct will be eradicated. Procreation will be an annual formality like the renewal of a ration card. There will be no loyalty except loyalty toward the party. There will be no love except the love of big brother. There will be no art, no literature, no science. When we are omnipotent, we shall have no more need of science. There will be no distinction between beauty and ugliness. There will be no curiosity, no employment of the process of life. All competing pleasures will be destroyed. But always do not forget this, Winston. Always there will be the intoxication of power, 
constantly increasing and constantly growing subtler. Always at every moment there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on the enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. And so Orwell depicts what he fears will be the result of man usurping the prerogatives of God. Sin coming to self-realization where man gains divinity and a sense of pseudo-omnipotence as he plays at God in this naked exercise of power. So we begin the dystopian nightmare with the rejection of God, the God of the Bible. That's where it starts. And then with the fear of this anarchy or, or fear of the threat of nature, man proceeds to remake nature as God incarnate. And as Tennyson put it, he does this through the parliament of man or the federation of the world. Man enlarged in this collectivist order. Now, before I look at these, I'm going to look at three attributes of God that man arrogates to himself. It is important to remember that the drive, the motive force behind all of this is man's religious hunger. That he sees this as a logical necessity. He can't understand people who don't get this. They don't understand the Christian view of reality because this is a world of change and decay where man is alienated from himself and he needs certainty, he needs order, he needs salvation. If the government isn't God's, he's got to recreate it on the human level. And that's why theologies of state have always developed when men jettison the true and living God. And Christianity then becomes the ultimate enemy. So, if man is now God, We need a doctrine of God. What is the Christian doctrine of God? Well, three critical aspects of the doctrine of God. Don't forget, Satan always counterfeits the truth. So there is a counterfeit for every true Christian doctrine that is uh, created by fallen man. The first, then, I think, is the unity of the Godhead. The unity of the Godhead. The Christian believes and must believe that God is not divided against himself. Now, the utopian delusion is that that man can restore paradise somehow by the exercise of his own will and power. This has been the dream since Plato's Republic, and he will use uh, power and technology and justice, man's concept of justice, to do it. And this is radical egalitarian, equalitarian, equalization. That's the route to unity. You can't have, you cannot tolerate differences to any degree. If you've got differences, distinctions, you can't have pure unity. And so inequality, moral differentiation, diversity and variety are a horror to these utopian dreams. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Christian God is inescapable. And if we do not have God, the living God, we will ape these, the do- true doctrine of God on the imminent level. Central then to the doctrine of God is the unity of the Godhead. What do we believe as Christians? Well, we have one God in three persons. Perfect relational unity, fully representative of each other, equally ultimate. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is now counterfeited. Just as utopia is a counterfeit of the kingdom of God, this doctrine is now counterfeited. Now, fundamental to man's idea of his own unity, the unity of the Godhead, man as the new God, is the idea of alienation, which is as old as Greek philosophy. What Plato held was that there is a, he had the form matter scheme. The the forms or the ideas, the ideal realm, and then the copies in the material realm, the world of being, the world, world of becoming. And the more man is distanced from the ideal, the the more copies there are, the more alienated or distanced he is from the ideal. 
the idea of man. Man is therefore alienated from his idea of himself. This comes out in Hegelian philosophy, which is critically important here. And I'm now quoting Thomas Molnar. Hegel's system regards man as condemned to externalize himself, to cease being pure consciousness. Every interpersonal relationship, every relationship with the state, every economic relationship, and every relationship with God and religion is reification or objectivization of man's subjective essence. What does that mean in English? Uh, It means that... Man is steadily being alienated from his godhood by consciousness of anything outside of his own being. Now, the irony here is that just like in Buddhism, pure consciousness is non-being. This really means that uh, if you are conscious of nothing outside of the self, well, and the self is a blank unity, i.e. there's no... uh, 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 diversity within that idea of unity, what you have is unconsciousness. Unconsciousness, which is the essence of Buddhist philosophy. So consciousness of anything outside of oneself is seen to be a disaster. Differentiation then in history, in the created order, essentially is scattered bits of God everywhere. You're a bit of God, I'm a bit of God. Everything's a bit of God. Man can now only realize himself by reintegrating these fragmented bits of the self. There's been this disintegration. So the quintessential utopian comes along, uh, looking at Hegelian thought, Karl Marx. And he says, I've got the solution to this. I've solved the problem with the communist society. Now, before you think, hang on, Karl Marx, that's dead, isn't it? Marxism's dead. No, it isn't. Not at all. Far from it. In fact, it's the dominant, in my experience, it is the dominant philosophy of the intellectual class today. Now, they may, have, they may have combined it, as they often have, with Buddhist elements of spirituality. They may have spiritualized or ecoized the language. But the university students in my church in Toronto are, are, being, are indoctrinated by their professors. They're deprogrammed at Westminster in a Marxist ideology of total world government, total world order, and the liberation of the planet, which is the new proletariat. The new oppressed mass is the planet itself. It's kind of the subsumes all the other ideas into one. And Marx held that man was alienated from nature, which is himself, with which he ought to be one. Nature is, uh, or work, is actually an expression of Nature manifesting itself through man. So you have nature and man as object and subject. Now, how does Karl Marx reconcile these? He says that when we control nature by industry, by work, we reconcile subject and object into oneness. Nature or God recreates itself by work, and this expresses man's one essence with nature. It sounds complicated, but it really just means man is God. It means that the human consciousness is divinity and that this seeming alienation is reconciled when man takes total control of nature, which is total control of himself. And he remakes all things in terms of scientific socialism. Human consciousness then is the supreme divinity. There is a God concept here. And so we are confronted with the strange paradox that the utopian denies the existence of God on the one hand, but then holds that man may become divine or develop a combination of purity and power that will transcend human form. So our ideas of God are actually what man really is. He's just forgotten it. He's alienated from himself. He can rediscover it. And he can rediscover this through scientific reorganization, technological work, and the reconquest of his essential unity, which is the conquest of nature. He possesses himself by conquering his environment. So breaking that down, it means that the 
uh, utopian worldview is evolutionary, it's pantheistic, and it's materialistic. And don't forget, if that sounds like too much like scientific naturalism in a conference about you know, the occult and oneism, not at all. Spirit and matter are ultimately one in this worldview. They may be temporarily different, but they are becoming one again. They're being reunited. The individual then is identified with everybody. So the individual becomes everybody, and everybody is divine. It's quite a, a simple procedure. The individual is everyone. Everyone is divine because the man-God needs to be reunited with itself to achieve the unity of the Godhead. This is going to require cooperation of all men together. To, be, to achieve the unity of the Godhead, everybody needs to work together for this. Everybody's got to cooperate together in the way laid down by science, they say. Now, oftentimes the... Uh, doctrine of God in all of this is made totally incomprehensible, but essentially man's qualities are kind of blown up to cosmic proportions, and the goal, we're told, is this universal mind. Teilhard de Chardin called it the omega point, which is uh, interesting. He looked forward to the Geophysical Congress of 1955, This clock has stopped, which is fabulous. (laughs) Eternity now. Uh, We have reached the omega point. It is actually 5.15. Excellent. So, uh, and this uh, this new sphere that he envisioned, he called it the new sphere, uh, was the emergence of a super mankind. And... The confidence of many academic elites uh, in this century and in the past century is remarkable in their belief in this unity of the Godhead. Bertrand Russell, another Brit, born in 1872, regarded as one of Britain's most important intellectuals in the 20th century. He was an ardent utopian. This is what he said. It is the conquest of nature which has made possible a more friendly, cooperative attitude between human beings. And if rational men cooperated... Uh, and used their scientific knowledge to the full, they could now secure the economic welfare of all, international government, business organization, and birth control should make the world comfortable for everyone. With the problem of poverty and destitution eliminated, men could devote themselves to the constructive arts of civilization, the progress of science, the demunition of disease, the postponement of death, and the liberation of the impulses that make for joy. Take first international government. The necessity for this is patent to every person capable of political thought. When all the armed forces of the world are controlled by one world authority, one worldwide authority, we shall have reached the stage in relation of states which was reached centuries ago in relation of individuals. Nothing less than this will suffice. The road to utopia is clear. It lies partly through politics and partly through changes in the individuals. As for politics, far the most important thing is the establishment of an international government, end quote. They all believed this. They were all talking about this. Now, he formally repudiated communism, but he believed in statism and in socialism, so I'm not quite sure exactly what he thought the difference was. And in this, man is going to be united by love. Love. And that is critical to the unity of the Godhead. You see, we say that the Father loves the Son through the person of the Holy Spirit. There is a complete loving relational community. So man says, well, for us to achieve the unity of our Godhead, love is central. Man must love all men, and that means social justice. And we're going to be hearing about that later this week. This is not to be equated with the love and justice of the Bible, not love of the living God. That's rejected, remember. This is the love of the new God collectivist man and he must be loved with an absolute devotion nothing less than total devotion will suffice for there to be unity there must be equality and equal ultimacy you see the necessity of this transference of the doctrine of god there must be equal ultimacy among all people 
No discrimination about anything because good and evil, right and wrong, in terms of objective standards, are divisive. They are discriminatory. And nothing can be ultimately right and wrong when we talk about evolutionary pantheism. Those are simply labels for different periods of advancement throughout psychological and social evolution. That means, then, that religions, cultures, sexual practices, lifestyle choices, they're all equal because they're all fragments of God. And they're all coming back together into this unity of the Godhead. No one fragment of God can be more ultimate than the other. That's divisive. All things must be leveled. All values are, therefore, social constructs in the process of becoming one. And that means all the divisions, as we've been hearing about this week, between gender and so forth, are broken down. In fact, in Canada today, one can express whatever gender one feels, irrespective of biology. If I feel like a woman, I can go and use a woman's washroom. That's it. To recognize, accept, and celebrate these ideas, these social values, is called love now. That's love. And to insist that others recognize them and celebrate them and require them as a matter of legislation is justice. So love and justice come together here in this idea. Today in Canada, our children in the elementary schools are being taught that there are somewhere between 6 and 12 genders. Gender expressions. This is being taught in the schools. We have a lesbian Ontario premier with a radical agenda for education. Therefore, by eliminating differences, this is their dream, economic prosperity, knowledge, health, gender, moral values, all humankind, mankind will be humanized and socialized, and the unity of the Godhead will be achieved. And of course, they believe that ultimately that will create a classless, stateless, familyless, lawless, religionless, structureless collectivity of harmony of themselves with others, that is, with nature. So ontological being and political. They go hand in hand. Unity. And those who oppose this are heretics. They're heretics. Uh, They are disturbers of the peace. They are purveyors of the new atheism, which is how the early church was regarded in the pagan world, as atheists for denying the gods of Rome. Such a vision can't be tolerated because we deny the unity of the new Godhead. So we're a constant burr in the saddle, like a stone in the shoe. The unity of human humanity is the fundamental principle of the dystopian nightmare. Second thing, which will be briefer, another necessary attribute of God is the omnipotence of the Godhead. The omnipotence of the Godhead. Basic to any true doctrine of God is omnipotence. If God isn't sovereign and all-powerful, He can't be God. So the new source of certainty, the new source of control, must be omnipotent. Man must acquire these characteristics of God if he's to realize divinity. To be all-powerful, you have to eliminate uncertainty. Is God uncertain about anything? Is God unaware of the future? No, God knows the end from the beginning. Known unto the Lord are all his works from the beginning of the world. So man must be the same. Now this is going to require an omnicompetence in man. A total control of all things, a universal jurisdiction. And that universal jurisdiction will require the political use of coercion and a sovereign authority. We've been hearing, this explains the UN. It's a, it's a theological idea. It's a theological necessity in their view. This is why President Obama is terrified about Britain having a referendum on leaving the EU. Oh no, the breakdown of God. Peace of God is fragmenting over there. This requires then the manipulation of people, that's nature, to eliminate uncertainty. And that requires totalitarianism. It's completely logical. It's not just a political idea. 
It's a theological necessity. It's a religious principle. This is what uh, Thomas Molnar writes, his excellent book uh, on utopia, the perennial heresy. He says, it is a doctrinal necessity inscribed in Marxist theory. Totalitarianism prescribes total domination over man, over all his mental, spiritual, creative, and technical endeavors. And its organization of these activities is the sine qua non of restoring man to a direct relationship with nature. All institutions must be destroyed since they, they are nothing but monuments to man's alienation. So you create this totalitarian world order and then it will just disappear because man will have realized his harmony with himself. Now this is obviously a complete nightmare. What we have here is the ideal world from which man is alienated, remember, That's the world of nature. It's being reflected in the human mind. It's it's transformed into these various thought forms. And true philosophy then becomes actually just materialism. Because don't forget, nature, material, is just doing the thinking now. It's just been transferred into... There isn't really a concept of mind today in modern behavioral evolutionary psychology or even in philosophy. There's brain. There isn't actually mind except on the collective level. So... Philosophy actually isn't now about reflecting on God and on virtue, nor is science. It's about controlling things, not explaining things. It's about uh, power over things, manipulating things, which is the essence of magic, by the way. Occultism is about power and control and manipulation, all of it. You look at the laws of magic, they are about control. That's why, actually, uh, originally things like alchemy and so forth, before Christian uh, view of science broke into history was combined with the magical because it believed in this uh, nature, this chaotic nature. So since man is a part of material nature, he's equally the object of scientific and social experiment. Just, as, just like using a Bunsen burner, remember you were a kid in the laboratory at school and you're mixing chemicals to do an explosion? Man is no different from that. He's material, he's part of nature, he can be experimented on. God being eliminated, this stage of freedom from God is set. And this is the stage of necessity. Why is it the stage of necessity? Nature and history now dictate all human decisions and actions. And nature cannot be refused. Why? Well, because the dictates are proclaimed first and foremost by nature. And that's all there is. Man is part of nature. Nature is God. So when nature speaks through man, God is speaking. So nature cannot be refused. There is nothing beyond nature to which you and I can say, no, that can't happen. That's tyranny. No, that's evil. Because there is nothing that transcends nature. Everything is now on the imminent level. God is imminent. Expressed through man in his thinking in the scientific socialist state. No transcendent appeal is possible. The one is imminent and incarnates the truth. And again, that's necessary. You have to have a doctrine of incarnation. Man is now the incarnation of nature, and his word is irresistible. He now must have a total predestinating power. And so freedom, in this view, becomes the renunciation of freedom. Freedom, as we understand it, is man's childhood, his infancy. True freedom is freedom to fulfill his destiny as an imminent God. That means that the God of the Bible is totally an outcast in modern politics because if there is any God that claims power for himself, he will always be drawing people away to this other source of power, not the omnicompetence and omnipotence of the new man-God. Now, how is he going to wield this power? Well, uh, in the last prophet, Haldane envisioned a world where men communicated by telepathy. And the result is the emergence of a superorganism. Of course, telepathy is an occult idea, part of spiritism. And <clears throat> through this uh, telepathy, the community acts in terms of one common interest at all times by electronic waves being 
sent out. Now, interestingly enough, the technocrats today believe, and I've listened to lectures on this, they believe that the internet soon, not that far into the future, will be something that you will be able to access directly through your own cortex. You'll be able to blink a few times, and their their dream is that you'll be able to access the the ether of the uh, the internet universe and world directly without any physical pieces in your hands or product. As it were, you're not going to be looking at a screen anymore. There'll be some kind of direct engagement with your own brain or mind. This is brilliantly depicted for you Star Trek fans in Star Trek with the Borg. Who's seen Star Trek First Contact? Put your hands up. Don't be ashamed. Okay, if you haven't seen it, put your hands up. If you've not seen Star Trek First Contact, don't be ashamed. Shame on you. Put your hands down. In the Star Trek film First Contact... We have the crew engage in a struggle with the Borg. The Borg's goal is perfection. Perfection. And they would achieve this by assimilation of people into the collective. The Borg collective. The Borg are a race of semi-organic part cybernetic automatons interconnected by carrier waves. So there are no individuals. There's no individual worlds. And they claim their power is irresistible. Their chant is you will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Right, now, this is actually, this is ironically the goal. This kind of Borg-type existence. Now, uh, I'm assured by some of my friends and colleagues at Oxford that that we, our scientists, are working on combining the organic and the... uh, the non-organic components, because DNA is, of course, a tremendously powerful storage device. They, they believe this. They want this. And in such a world, although it seems far-fetched, H.G. Uh, Wells, who the utopian par excellence, he spoke of a process of thought of which all men are part, growing in range and power without limit, Man, as a collective, could be immortal. H.G. Wells believed that. You see the fusing of the sort of scientific uh, uh, modern with the utopian oneist spirituality. Man, as an individual, is nothing. As a collective, he can be immortal. He can be God. And toward this end, he said, there should be no delay. Man's task is to subordinate himself to the immortal being of the race. So he then grows in knowledge and power. And he says, my idea of politics, I quote H.G. Wells now, is an open conspiracy to hurry these tiresome, wasteful, evil things, that's nationality and war, out of existence to end this empire and that empire and set up the one empire of man. What gets in the way? He says, our feeble-minded attachment to God. This is what he says. Our political, our economic, our social lives, which still have to become illuminated and directed by the scientific spirit, are still sick and feeble with congenital traditionalism. What's the answer, H.G. Wells says? A great release of human energy and a rapid dissolution of social classes through an ever-increasing efficiency of economic organization. Total socialism. Total power. Scientific control. And these, these writers, it's fascinating reading them, they move between the language of the sciences and the social sciences and the collective and totalitarian politics so easily. They move between the two. Think about the Nazi utopia for a moment. The Superman justified scientific experimentation as a quest to improve the quality of the race. Medical intervention was political intervention. Advocacy today of birth control, abortion, infanticide, various forms of genetic research. All of this stuff is designed to uh, eliminate the natural sentiments of private man and replace them with public sentiments. Public sentiments. Look at the uh, power grab of the political class today. And it's all about the great society. These are the terms that the politicians are using. The great society. The good society. And this wielding of power requires a vast bureaucracy. The nanny state, which you're all familiar with. Not as familiar with as me as a Canadian, but you're familiar with it to some degree. 
The transition to utopia, we're told, you see, is a traumatic one. It may be traumatic, but it's worth it. And on the way, we have to eliminate the instruments of freedom. And first amongst those is private property. And money is a form of private property because by money, you transfer money into property, right? So money and property are one and the same thing. And property or money is a source of dominion or power. Therefore, to get total power, the man-god must eliminate private property because private property and money introduce a rival source of power and resistance. Everything has to be owned by the collective. Most Westerners are totally unaware of what the, the meaning of the rise of taxation, of property taxes, of income taxes. Taxation is a claim to ownership. And if you don't give God his tithe, the state will take its tithe and it will quadruple it or more. We won't go into that. That's another subject. Wealth and property, therefore, have to be equalized. Property has to be collective because the most, and now the most powerful social entity owns and controls the source of power. That's why the state has to seize your property and your money. In Britain today, inheritance taxes are at 40%. So when my in-laws pass away, the state will seize 40. They are the elder brother. They will seize 40% of the inheritance. This is the way, the, the, this is the goal of the modern utopia. Utopia sees the globe as a powerful dynamo, a source of unlimited power. The fact is, says Molnar, that the concept of the state completely dominating and regulating the lives of its citizens has been, by and large, accepted in the second half of the 20th century. The debate of the past several decades has been merely whether the state, the race, the ideological empire, or world government will stage-manage the last acts of the passage to a coalescing mankind. And when they believe that's done, well, then, of course, you really do have the Federation of Planets. You, You do have Star Trek. Start, actually, the crew's coming to Toronto on the 9th of March. I'm going to go down and see them. Um, they really are the crew of the next generation. I might go and see Patrick Stewart down there. Uh, their idea here is that solar systems, other solar systems can be colonized by man. Death, him, death will be defeated and man will be God. In order to accomplish that, though, the human being is a guinea pig. And we, uh, we, we talk about Canadian society today as a social experiment. A social experiment. What is the first thing that you need to conduct any experiment? What must be done? There's some scientists here. You have to control the environment. You have to control the variables. No scientific experiment is valid unless you control the environment and control all the variables. If society is a social experiment... It is non-valid and non-scientific without total control. So controlling things when predestination is no longer God's, but man's becomes the prerogative of man. And man loses independence. He loses an appeal beyond the state, beyond nature. And then he will do whatever he wants with man. He will pursue cloning. The modification of human organs. The creation of it. I, I've read all about these ideas. This is all, these are either ideas or they're things that we're trying to implement now. The creation of synthetic human beings. Control of the weather. Elimination of crime. Food modification. Colonizing the universe. Even the development of an artificial sun for when our sun goes nova. Man thinks he can stick one back in the heavens. Really? Escape through a hatch in the universe into another dimension. Perhaps. When we use up this universe's resources. The combining of the human and the machine, the elimination of disease and the postponement or deliverance from death. This is a Tower of Babel. It's not a new idea. It's a very old one. And so in this will to power, man must also arrogate to himself the right to judgment. Still only quarter past five. I'm doing great. He must... Also, transfer judgment from transcendence to imminence, from God to history. This is critically important when we understand the issue of power. Man has to create a worldly court for absolute judgment and consign men to an imminent hell. An imminent hell. 
because these doctrines are inescapable. Disobedience cannot be tolerated. Don't forget, there's no transcendent critique. There's no God to sit in judgment over the collective. Those who disagree with this vision are outside of the new humanity. They have to internalize, like everybody else, the politically correct way of thinking. The non-conformers. That's why in Canada we have had Christian organizations who have been given an order to have sensitivity training by the state. And they are hauled before human rights tribunals for speaking against the right way of thinking, the correct way of thinking. Non-conformers must be punished for their bigotry, their intolerance, their rejection of the democratic will. Their sexism, their classism, their nationalism, and a variety of psychological phobias that you can't keep up with because we're all mentally ill as well. We must be. Surely we have to be ill if we don't get this because man is God. The utopian worldview is so self-evident, only a perverted mind would deny it. So judgment is the expression of total power, omnipotence. No God who doesn't judge is a God. And this is personified by the state. Every worldview has its vision of heaven and hell, friends. Every worldview. In Eastern thought, hell is existence. Isn't it ironic? What is it? Proverbs 8.36 says, All those who sin against me wrong their own souls. All those who hate me love death. There's a love of death. Heaven is impersonal being or non-being in Eastern thought. For the utopian, hell is the world. Again, it's the same thing. It's, it's creation. Law and absolute values, therefore, hell is, the, hell is the world of God's law and absolute values. Heaven is the future dream of man as God. One social commentator puts it this way. He says, to transfer final judgment, heaven and hell from the eternal order to time is to absolutize history and enthrone man as God. It means the destruction of liberty because history ceases to be the realm of liberty and testing, but becomes a place of final trial. Having made the final judgment temporal, the humanist cannot permit liberty because liberty is hostile to finality. Liberty presupposes both trial and error and the possibility of serious waywardness when and where man is sinful and imperfect. History cannot tolerate both trial and error and also insist on finality and the end of trial and error. The humanistic utopias, listen carefully friends, are also all prisons because they insist on a finality which man does not possess. Accordingly, the socialist utopias demand the re-education of man in the post-revolutionary world, in the era beyond judgment. The new era is the new heaven on earth, but history refuses to terminate on man's orders because it runs on God's time and not in terms of man's myths. Lastly, if man is to be God, he must be omniscient. In every true doctrine of God, in the Christian doctrine of God, God is all-knowing, and that's basic to his being God, and that's needed for total government. You have to know everything. And this is a facet we see in our own time. We have the man-God, the religious utopian, through his organized apparatus of the scientific socialist state, he seeks total knowledge of man by total regulation. You've got to have regulations in order to have total knowledge. And most importantly, you have to control education. You can't settle for approximations and tolerate provisional uncertain conclusions if you are the recreator and predestinator of nature. You must have omniscience. And this means the right to gather information in minute detail about every person. You've got to know everything. You've got to have a surveillance state. The UK today, the United Kingdom, is the surveillance state of Europe. A, a, a massive network of interconnected CC television cameras photograph every citizen multiple times a day. The sphere of privacy is ever shrinking. Mental health programs, chemical control of the mind, 10 million children in the USA on Ritalin, lobotomizing the brain because they're not suggestible enough in the classroom. However, the most obvious step in omniscience is the control of education. 
The utopian does not believe in a permanent human nature. What they believe in is an education that must transform man and all future generations. And to do that, you have to eliminate as far as possible the influence of parents. Usually that has meant in the utopias the, taking children away from their parents completely from, as, as early as possible. Today in Canada, it means universal child care from as early as possible. Getting children out from under the influence of their parents because when you break the family circle, you disintegrate the old and you can reintegrate the new man and create the new man who is more pliable. Nurtured now, not on divisive religion, but with feelings of equality, fraternity, and dependency. The goal is not actually uh, to excel and to become excellent. The goal is to create homogeny. It's not about education anymore. Declining standards result in higher marks today. Everybody passes. Education is governed in the modern utopian age by behaviorism as an idea. Behaviorism is basic to it. You have the material creature who is governed by external impressions and environmental factors. And then you can apply sociological controls, scientific controls, ready to remake society. In uh, Hegel, the psychology, uh, we noticed this in Hegel already, but in the psychology of behaviorism, consciousness is the problem. Consciousness leads to alienation. Consciousness has to be rejected. The individual soul is rejected. God outside of nature is rejected because the man-god can't be omniscient if there's, a, if there's an individual independent soul. You can't know that. So all the cause, the human being must be a material event that can be totally controlled by stimuli. And this is the theory of modern education. Let alone understanding God if human beings are individuals with individual souls and minds, they cannot achieve total control. And there is then no dividing line between animal and beast, Allah, Peter Singer, and others today. Man is just an advanced animal. He can be uh, treated as such. And the aim is, therefore, omniscience. Interestingly enough, yoga and Eastern spirituality, which we've been discussing this week, help pacify children and man to that suggestibility if you can pacify kids and pacify people they'll be more suggestible to control more easier to control unconscious of the self and only of the collective man will be omniscient this is what he aims at i need 30 seconds more maybe like 60 seconds more i wrap this up fallen man is a sinner Man is a sinner. That's what the Bible says. He's not God. He hasn't got a unity of the Godhead. He's not all-powerful. He's not omniscient. But he does want to be as God, according to Genesis 3. And the motive force has always been and remains the usurpation of these divine attributes, which falsified in the hands of sinful man create hell on earth. If man is not a sinner, he doesn't need a savior. He needs an expert, a planner. He needs to be controlled and governed. He needs to be reorganized for his liberation. He is now beyond good and evil. He will redefine and reimagine all these things for himself. And the more people are committed to this utopian illusion, the less ready they are to recognize their own depravity and sin. The deeper they get into this, the less ready they are to acknowledge man's sinfulness. And this is at the root of dystopia. It's man's prideful defiance of God. His real vice, says Molnar, is first the desire to dismantle human individuality through the dissolution of individual conscience and consciousness, and then to replace these with the collectivity and coalesced consciousness. So God and his providence is replaced with man, nature, and his determinism. And this attitude is bankrupting our society today. It's destroying our society today. Some of you will not be aware that the 19th century utopias anticipated nationalization of industries, the welfare state, socialized medicine, unemployment insurance, state pensions, family allowances, and much more. And these are the things that are now bankrupting and causing the fragmentation and destruction of our social order. 
Utopianism is a worldview and it's the temptation of the garden. You will be as God, knowing you can have all knowledge. You can control things, you can govern things outside of God. It is the original temptation, utopia. And it is therefore dystopia because man cannot arrest time and history. He will be endlessly frustrated because that's God's judgment upon his sin. The gospel awakens men from their dream to recognize that they're not God. They're not omnipotent. They're not omniscient. They're not transcendent. They are noble. They're made in the image of God, but they're created as vice regents to serve, obey, and glorify God. And in this, to discover their humanity and their unity. Unity not with nature, but with God. Not becoming God, but in fellowship with God. And with the living God and with their fellow men, which is illustrated for us in communion. The communion feast. Our covenantal union with God and with man. And instead of exercising domination, we're called to exercise dominion under God, making creation into culture. And through the ministry of the gospel, returning God's world into God's garden. And that is the answer to man's religious hunger. God is in control. And our joy and peace and salvation and rest is in the worship of God and the enjoyment of him forever. St. Paul says, awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead from unconsciousness, and Christ shall give thee light. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.